And now we open our Bibles again to Matthew's Gospel as we come to chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. Matthew chapter 14, beginning at verse 13. Let us bow in prayer before reading. Our Father, we ask that the Holy Spirit will illumine the page of Scripture and help us to see our great need of Jesus, and that you will enable us by sovereign grace to go to him who alone is the sufficient Savior for sinners like us. Father, it is this shepherd's prayer as an under-shepherd of the great shepherd of the sheep, the Lord Jesus, that my people will be holy, that you will deepen within us holiness of life, that your ministers and leaders here will be holy men, leading a people more deeply into holiness of life, and that you will use your word to achieve and accomplish that in each life here. And for those who are strangers to grace, that they may see their need of Christ and be enabled by grace to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel. For we know that it's not by man's method that you do this, but only according to the sovereign working of your spirit that this is accomplished. Only you can convert a heart and save a soul. And for that we pray in the name of the one who gave himself for our sins, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Matthew chapter 14, beginning with verse 13. This is the word of God. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and take the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Now Matthew's gospel, you will have noticed, his constant concern is fulfillment. How often do we read in Matthew a scripture passage from the Old Testament, and Matthew will say something like, thus is fulfilled, showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of these Old Testament passages, that the entirety of the Old Testament points to him who is the Messiah, who would die for our sins and be raised by God's power from the grave. Now, we would expect, therefore, when we come to a passage such as this, once again, to see fulfillment, and that is precisely what we see. Jesus takes his disciples to a desolate place. The word eremos means desert or wilderness. He took them to a wilderness place. And the wilderness, you will recall, is the theologically correct place for the Messiah to be manifested. 
You will remember all the way back in Isaiah, the 40th chapter, that we have a prophecy of John the Baptist preceding the Messiah. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for your God. And so the coming of John the Baptist was in the wilderness preceding the Messiah, who also would be the one who would save his people and establish his kingdom. Or you will remember that when we first see Jesus preparing for his public ministry, that he does so through temptation in the wilderness, 40 days and 40 nights, recapitulating what happened, of course, with ancient Israel and also pointing to the fulfillment of the covenant that Adam broke. And so we find constantly fulfillment in this gospel, and we find fulfillment here. Now, the first thing I want you to see with me is the compassion of Jesus. As we open by reading in verses 13 and 14, we see Jesus as he has uh, gone with, um, with uh, his disciples. It tells us, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. And so Jesus had compassion on sinners, and he healed the sick. Now, Jesus did not simply heal the sick because he had compassion on the body. He did have compassion on the body. But had Jesus wished, he could have simply gone throughout Israel and healed every sickness and removed every disease and raised everyone who had died. He didn't do that. His healing miracles show a greater and deeper compassion than simply the compassion that is shown even for serious illness. The compassion that he shows is that the kingdom has arrived, that the saving rule and reign of God has come through him who is the Messiah, and the healing ministries are simply indicative of who he is and what he came to do as the savior of sinners. Mark's gospel, you know, tells us that he looked upon the crowd and that he had compassion on them because they were as sheep without a shepherd. And that, of course, fulfills all sorts of Old Testament passages that point to the great shepherd of Israel that would come and save his people from their sins. Well, here in Matthew as well, we're intended to see the compassion of Jesus as fulfillment as he heals the sick in this portion of Scripture. Jesus' compassion, I think, is a remarkable thing, don't you? Have you ever thought about it? You read it. You know him personally by faith. And so when you read it, sometimes you don't think a great deal about this. Yes, he's compassionate. We should be compassionate as well. And this is a wonderful thing to consider. But perhaps you have forgotten that the ones upon whom he shows compassion are those who broke his law. That he looks upon the multitude and he sees sinners who need salvation by grace. These are those who have stood before the holiness of God and they have broken his law, deserving his infinite displeasure, and it is upon them that he shows compassion. It is to them that he comes and touches them and heals them of their diseases and removes their sicknesses. He broke, he came for those who broke his law. Sin is any one of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. He came to those who were condemned, those who were under his wrath, those who were under his curse. After all, that's where sickness comes from. Adam fell, the whole human race fell with him and in him in his first transgression. And sickness and illness is simply indicative of our rebellion against the holy and the living God. And so we need the compassion of a redeemer the compassion of a Savior, not only to heal the body, but ultimately to remove the sin that brought this curse into the world. 
Jesus' compassion here is a foretaste of that greater compassion that he will show when he goes to the cross and sheds his blood for sinners. It is a foretaste of that ultimate compassion that is shown for us sinners when he goes to the cross and he sheds his blood for us who broke his law, for us who rebelled against God, for us as we were under his wrath and we were under his condemnation. There we see Jesus coming to fulfill his Father's loving commission, going to a cross, bearing the wrath of God for lawbreakers, becoming a propitiation, bearing the wrath of God as a substitute in our place. The compassion of Jesus in this passage, healing the sick, points to his kingdom, his saving rule that has arrived, that points all the way to the cross in which he shows love and compassion to you and me by taking upon himself the curse that we deserve to pay forever and ever and ever. Now, don't you find the compassion of Jesus something wonderful? We open by seeing a compassionate Redeemer and Savior that has come into the world to save sinners like you and like me. But then secondly, we also see provision in the wilderness. Now, this demonstrates, this, this miracle of feeding the 5,000 demonstrates, again, that the kingdom of God has come. He's not simply feeding 5,000-plus hungry people. It is, if you will, an enacted parable in which he is demonstrating that the kingdom of God has come in his person. And I think the first thing we notice about this enacted parable of feeding the 5,000 is that we don't have the resources to save ourselves, to bring ourselves into the kingdom, or to keep ourselves in the kingdom. You see, in verses 15 and 17, we have this interesting dialogue. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, a wilderness place, if you will. And the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. Now imagine that. 5,000 people. We're told at the end of the passage, besides women and children, so 7,000, perhaps 10,000 people here. All of them are hungry. Where are they going to get food? Send them away. Send them away so that they can go to the villages. No, no, you don't need to do that, says Jesus. You feed them. What do you mean? We have five loaves. We have two fish. How are we going to feed them? How is that possible? How can we feed this hungry multitude? What is Jesus doing? He is helping his his disciples to see their complete and utter insufficiency. That they are altogether incapable of doing anything in the kingdom of God on their own. They can't bring themselves in the kingdom. They can't keep themselves in the kingdom. They can't feed hungry sinners in the kingdom. They are totally insufficient in and of themselves. They don't even have enough for the 12 or 13 if you add Jesus to the number. But Jesus goes on to show as he provides in the wilderness that all of the resources are found in him. And so having shown them their insufficiency, the Lord Jesus then says in verse 17, They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. He said, bring them here to me. Bring them here to me. You're right. You're insufficient. Bring them to me. I am not insufficient. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and take the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds 
And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Jesus is in charge. He is altogether sovereign in this circumstance. You are insufficient. I'm sufficient. I'm the sovereign of the universe. I'm completely in charge. He alone can multiply the loaves and the fish. He alone can feed the hungry multitude. He alone can demonstrate that the kingdom, the saving rule of God, is established in his person and in his work. Don't you see to what Jesus points in this enacted parable? He is showing us that in the covenant of grace, he alone can provide our need. This is a visible parable teaching about the kingdom that he alone is sufficient to meet the needs of sinners. I ask you, do you know deep within your heart that you need forgiveness of your sins? Jesus provides forgiveness of sins to those who trust in him. Do you need the wrath of God removed because you are under his condemnation as a sinner? He bore the wrath of God to remove condemnation for everyone who trusts in him. Do you need redemption from your sin, reconciliation to God the Father? He accomplishes redemption through his shed blood and reconciles sinners to the Father. Do you need a new heart because your heart is black with sin? Do you need a new heart because it is stony and that you would cast that stony heart against God if you could? He gives that new heart to lost sinners. Do you need life from the dead? He can raise the dead. Do you need faith and repentance because you cannot believe and cannot repent in your sin? He grants faith and repentance to needy sinners. Do you need persevering grace as a believer? Because the way is hard and you don't seem to be able to make it, he grants persevering grace to his people. Do you need a heavenly home? He takes his people all the way to the heavenly home. He is altogether sufficient who came and established his rule and reign and saving might so that he might bring you all the way into the gates of heaven. Whatever is needed in our lost condition, he provides Whatever condition there is, He has met so that His grace comes to you unconditionally. Let me ask you, my friend, did the Lord of glory come down from heaven and take human nature and open His sacred veins that His blood might flow because you merited it? Because you earned it? Because you could have provided it all along? No. It is altogether because of the unconquerable compassion of the Savior of sinners, that you are redeemed from your awful sins. You know, as we think of this portion of the text, we are probably meant to think of Numbers chapter 11. You remember what Moses says in Numbers 11? There's the vast multitude of the children of Israel, and he says to God, where can I get meat for all these people? (laughs) It's the same question that the disciples have here. And the Lord answered Moses, is the Lord's arm too short? Where can I get the food for the 5,000? Where can we disciples get it? Jesus' answer, bring them to me. Is the Lord's arm too short? I am the Lord, the sovereign of heaven and earth. 
the Creator and the Sustainer of all things. Nothing is too hard for me. Remember that, people of God, who are saved in the kingdom and you find life hard. Nothing is too hard for Him. He can do it. And did you see also the wealth of His provision in the kingdom? We read in 19 through 21 that He took these five loaves, two fish, after blessing, broke it, gave to the disciples, they gave to the crowds, and in verse 20 we are told, and they ate, they all ate, and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Now Jesus could have continued his creation miracle so that the food produced and produced and produced and produced and produced infinitely. But he did not do that. He enabled them to show the largesse of his grace. Enough was gathered up that they could see something of his power, something of the wonder of his grace. And all were satisfied, pointing again to him. This overflow of grace and overflow of mercy so that people of God in the covenant of grace, we never lack a thing. As Paul tells us in Romans 5, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more. All that was lost in Adam has been regained in Christ and overplussed so that in the covenant of grace you have an abundant and you find your complete satisfaction in him. Third thing I want you to see in the text is fulfillment and promise. Fulfillment and promise. Really here I'm asking the question, what is the significance of this miracle? And the first significance that we find for this miracle is that it is a miracle of fulfillment. The crowd who had sat in synagogues Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath, having heard the word of God read, they would have seen all that Jesus does here in light of the Old Testament without question. And two Old Testament narratives would have come to their minds. The first, of course, would have been the passage that was read or the passage in Numbers in which there is manna that God sends for his people in the wilderness. Jesus is that manna for the new covenant people of God in the wilderness. And if you think I'm making this up, remember I'm not, because in John chapter 6, Jesus draws explicitly this parallel when he says, I am the true bread that came down from heaven. And he points back to that miracle of old and says, I'm the fulfillment of it. But the second passage that would have come to the minds of these people is a small little passage back in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42 and following. Here's what it says. A man came from Baal Shilasha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. Now that passage would have come to the minds of the hearers, in which they would have recognized something greater than Elisha is here. A greater power is here. A greater person is here. A greater salvation is here than even has come. 
through the great prophet Elisha in the Old Testament. This is fulfillment, people of God. The kingdom has come in Jesus, and he gives us our daily bread. He is the food for our souls. He is the manna in the wilderness for the people of God in this in this hard and difficult life. He is the greater than Elisha. He is the great prophet that would come and our priest and our king who can provide all that we need as the kingdom has come in him. And so the first significance of this passage is that it's fulfillment. But also, you also need to see that not only is it fulfillment, but it also has a present focus for us, a present focus. Now afterward, as the church would look at this, and then they would remember how Jesus ordained that we take the supper of the Lord, they would see some parallels. Now again, I'm not inventing this either. This is really here. All of the Gospels tell us about the feeding of the 5,000. The synoptic Gospels tell us that Jesus established the Lord's Supper. When we look at the feeding of the 5,000 and we see the establishment of the Lord's Supper, we see that Jesus, in the establishment of the Supper, uses the very same verbs as are found in the feeding of the 5,000 in the very same order. Took, blessed, or gave thanks. Broke, gave. This is what happened when he fed the 5,000. These are the verbs in the same order as he established the Lord's Supper. And so Matthew wants his readers to think this way. Mm. You see that feeding of the 5,000 way back there in the wilderness? And now we come to chapter 26 and we find Jesus establishing the supper. And now we come as Christians to the Lord's table and we we feast on the bread and we feast on the wine. Now at the Lord's table, we share a meal in communion with our Lord. As the multitude enjoyed table fellowship in the wilderness, we as pilgrims en route to heaven have table fellowship with our Lord. But we can take that a step further. For not only do we find that this passage is fulfillment, he is the manna from heaven, he is the greater than Elisha. Not only does Matthew intend that we connect this to the supper of the Lord so that we can say we now have table fellowship with him in the wilderness as well, but we also know that the New Testament takes this great theme that we find in the Old Testament of feasting, that we find in the Lord's Supper, and points ahead to a promise. And that is the promise that each one of you who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ today, despite your hardships and difficulties and the life that sometimes you find that is so, so very hard to live for the glory of God, you are promised a place at the great eschatological feast on the last day. Already we've seen that reference back here in Matthew in chapter 8 verse 11. Remember what Jesus said, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And as we read ahead in Matthew's gospel and we see the Lord's Supper established there in chapter 26, we read in verse 29, 
I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. A future hope, a future promise for those of us who come to the table of the Lord in faith. So your life, believer, is a troubled life in a fallen world, and this fallen world is not permanent. You should think when you come to the table of the Lord, a day is coming when we shall eat and drink of the fruit of the vine with Jesus in the consummated kingdom of God. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. You should think, just as in the wilderness God fed His people with manna, just as Jesus teaches us that He is the bread from heaven when He fed the 5,000, that same Jesus has promised that I now have a place at His table when He comes again. Unhindered fellowship, unending fellowship, undiminished communion with our Lord that is anticipated every time we come to the table that is spread before us in the presence of our enemies. Now in a crowd such as this, 5,000, maybe seven, maybe 10,000 people, in a crowd such as this, you can believe that there were those who were ritually impure. Another theme in Matthew's gospel, as we see him fellowshipping with sinners. My friend, he fellowships with sinners. He saves sinners. He removes our sin that he might commune with us. Who comes to the table of the Lord? Who fellowships with him? Who eats of that manna from heaven? And who will come to that eschatological feast on the last day? I'll tell you who. Sinners who are saved by grace alone. Whose hearts were once black with sin. Whose actions were once depraved. Adulterers cleaned by the blood of Jesus. Fornicators cleaned by the blood of Jesus. Liars and thieves cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Moralists who thought they could be saved by their works. Saved by the blood of Jesus. Converted, saved, washed, justified. Not one of us will deserve a place at that table. We are at that table, those of us who come by faith. We are at that table by the grace of God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Every one of us who will sit at that table will be a trophy of sovereign, free grace. Do you remember how Paul the Apostle puts this in 1 Corinthians 1.26 and following? He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source. Your life is Christ, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. For when we sit at that table, when Jesus comes again, 
we will boast only in the Lord, only in the cross of Christ. But I want to move and ask a fourth thing of this text. And that is, what does this text teach us about Jesus himself? And it teaches us many things, but I mention only three. First of all, this text teaches us the unique authority of Jesus. We've seen that unique authority all the way back into the Sermon on the Mount that we said would be pathological in any one who was not truly the Son of God. Who is this that can multiply the loaves and the fish and feed the hungry multitude? A greater provider than Moses, a greater bread than manna, the king who spreads his feast for his own in the presence of our enemy so that our cups overflow. What authority is his when he says, bring them to me. I will do what you cannot. I am the establisher of the saving rule of grace. His unique authority. But we also see his transcendent greatness because here we've seen a greater than Moses. And here we have seen a greater than Elisha. He leads his people in the wilderness. He makes a new covenant in his blood. He leads us to the great feast of eternal life. What greatness, what transcendent greatness we find in our Savior Jesus. But also we find his creative power and full deity. His creative power and full deity. What is this miracle if not a miracle of creation? As he multiplies the bread and the fish. Only God can do this, and that is precisely what he expects us to see in this passage. That he is God become man, his full deity. That he is the Lord of creation. But this Lord of creation is Lord of new creation as well who says to us, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation has come. The old has passed, the new has arrived. Well, let me bring this to conclusion by first addressing unbelievers who may be in our midst today. And what I want to say to you on the authority of God's word is come to the feast. Come to the feast. Christ, Jesus, came into the world to save sinners and feed us his mercy by sovereign grace. In John 6, 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes shall never thirst. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. Come to the feast, and by faith feed on his flesh and blood. Feed on Christ, the only one who can nourish your soul. Come to Christ, the only one who can save you from your sins. Come, come, come freely and by faith to the table, to the table that is spread before you in this sermon this morning. For I can tell you this, If you are not feasting on Jesus, if you are not feasting on him who is the true bread from heaven, you're feasting on something. You are devouring some person. You are devouring some relationship. You are feasting on some idol. 
You are feasting on the sin of your heart. You are eating yourself alive. You are destroying yourself. Don't, don't do that. Come to Jesus and feed on manna from heaven. I wonder if some of you remember this article that was written in the Boston Globe about 1990. As I was working through this text, I remembered it, and so I I went and looked it up. The internet is worth something, and so I found this. Here's the article. Accompanied by her fiancé, a woman went to the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston and ordered the meal. The two of them poured over the menu, made selections of china and silver, and pointed to pictures of the flower arrangements they liked. They both had expensive taste, and the bill, now I can't imagine this, the bill came to $13,000. After leaving a check for half that amount as down payment, (laughs) the couple went home to flip through books of wedding announcements. The day the announcements were supposed to hit the mailbox, the potential groom got cold feet. I'm just not sure, he said. It's a big commitment. Let's think about this a little longer. When his angry fiancé returned to the Hyatt to cancel the banquet, the events manager could not have been more understanding. The same thing happened to me, honey, she said, and told the story of her own broken engagement. But about the refund, she had bad news. The contract is binding. You're only entitled to $1,300 back. You have two options. To forfeit the rest of the down payment or go ahead with the banquet, I'm sorry, I really am. It seemed crazy, but the more the jilted bride thought about it, the more she liked the idea of going ahead with the party. Not a wedding banquet, mind you, but a big blowout. Ten years before, this same woman had been living in a homeless shelter. She had gotten back on her feet, found a good job, and set aside a sizable nest egg. Now she had the wild notion of using her savings to treat the down and outs of Boston to a night on the town. And so it was that in June of 1990, the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston hosted a party such as it had never seen before. The hostess changed the menu to boneless chicken in honor of the groom. and sent invitations to rescue missions and homeless shelters. That warm summer night, people who were, who were used to peeling half-gnawed pizza off the cardboard dined instead on chicken corton bleu. Hyatt waiters and tuxedos served hors d'oeuvres to senior citizens propped up by crutches and aluminum walkers. Bag ladies, vagrants, and addicts took one night off from the hard life on the sidewalks outside and instead sipped champagne, ate chocolate, wedding cake, and danced to a big band melody late into the night. (laughs) Now, wouldn't it have been a foolish thing to get such an invitation if you were on Skid Row and not go? That's precisely where you are if you're outside of Christ. You're on the moral Skid Row. You are incapable of bringing yourself up. Now, there's this feast that's been pressed upon you in this sermon. And the word of the Lord is, come, 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 eat, come, feast, come, eat, and drink of Jesus' person and Jesus' work. What a foolish thing not to come. 
And as we think about this story, we find another parallel, don't we? And it's this. These are the most unlikely people in Boston that you would expect at a place like this, eating food like this, celebrating like this, and that's me, and that's you. The most unlikely people, sinners in need of grace, condemned under the wrath of God, now set free to feast at the table of the Lord. And my friend, if you come, it is because the Holy Spirit will have worked in you a sense of your hunger so that you know that all the things you've been trusting cannot satisfy and only one can, and that is Jesus Christ, the manna from heaven. So that you are drawn by sovereign grace in a sense of your hunger to Jesus alone for your salvation. Now, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, if Christ sups with us, we cannot be proud but humble and grateful. I who once raised my puny fist against the Lord, now now I feast at the table. You know, you go to some wedding banquet and you arrive there and all the tables are set beautifully and there may be crystal and so forth and you think there's fine, fine tablecloth, there's wonderful silverware and I'm going to look for my name and I find my name at the table. Oh, I can be here, my name is here. By faith, I can look to that eschatological banquet to come and I see my name there at the table. Look to Jesus and find your name at the table, people of God. And bow in speechless gratitude that he invited you there. We sing it often. Why was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room? When thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. It was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly drew us in. Else we had still refused to taste and perished in our sin. Thank God. For the grace of the cross, thank God for the grace of the cross. Thank God for Jesus, the manna from heaven. And God's people said, Amen.